listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus and live together making disciples. Check out our other media or to find out more information about our church. Visit RedeemerSGF.com. And so today what we're going to see is really this kind of, hey, come and see the photo album, the snapshots of Jesus. And this is what John, the apostle, the gospel writer here, does. I mean, he just lays it thick in the first chapter. We see Jesus from so many different angles, so many different snapshots of who he is. And all these different snapshots, all these different titles of who Jesus is, while they may be different snapshots, they are not contradictory, but they are actually necessary. And so kind of like a friend saying, hey, hey, come and see these, these photos. The Gospel of John, the writer, is inviting us to sit down and really come and see Jesus as the Lamb of God, as our relational God, as our promise-keeping God. And so today is really an invitation to discipleship. But discipleship I want to call today the come and see discipleship. And it's going to be different than the idea of discipleship as in the attractional model. Come to the building and see everything because at the building is where we do discipleship. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm talking about a discipleship that is a fellowship of Jesus Christ, meaning we come and see Christ, that we go after Him. And so John the Baptist, up to this point, has been preaching. And the main thesis of his entire ministry is this. I, or Jesus is the light. I am not the light. And my hope is that you believe in the light through me. I am, Jesus is the light, I'm not the light, and I want you to believe in Him. And so we saw last week how that, that really that, uh, those objectives started to come uh, more open. And that G- John the Baptist clearly confessed, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I am not the light, but here is the light. Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God. And today we're going to see, another day lapses we're going to see that John the Baptist, his work is actually paying off. His goal, his objective was that through me, you would believe in the light. And that's what you begin to see. Disciples are being made, are being born. And so I want to read then John chapter 1, verse 35 through 51 to see this form of discipleship I'm calling come and see discipleship. Verse 35 to 37. So the next day, so we are on day three, I believe, from the time that John the Baptist comes onto the scene. He was standing with two of his disciples, John the Baptist standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by And said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So, come and see the Lamb of God. First and foremost, let's just kind of set the framework here, the groundwork here, in this entire section, the rest of chapter 1. Come and see the Lamb of God. John had disciples. And so we see this verbiage here, disciples. Well, what is a disciple? 
A disciple in its most basic form is a learner, a pupil, a follower. Right? You have a teacher and then you have a student. So this is in its basic form. But this is something that's going to be extremely necessary and crucial for us. Let me just kind of jump to application real quick. That we need to make sure that we know what is a disciple. And what does it mean to be a disciple? So in the case of John the Baptist here, John has been teaching and calling these people to himself, not for the purpose of, hey, look at me, but I want to show you who the light is. And I want you to remember, I'm not the light, but when we see him, I'm going to point him out to you, and I want you to go to him. John the Baptist leading the way in discipleship. And so verse 36, he says, there he is. Again, just like he said last week, behold the Lamb of God. The imagery here is a beautiful imagery. Jesus is nowhere near the cross at this point. The death Easter story is not even on the horizon. We have several years yet. Yet John the Baptist knows very clearly his role as the forerunner for the Messiah. That this Messiah who comes is going to fulfill the book of Isaiah, especially chapter 53, the one who's going to come and be slaughtered for our transgressions, for our sins, for our iniquities. And this light, this word, this lamb will come as one who is without blemish, who is perfect, and his blood will be what atones for our sins. His blood will be what makes us children of the living God. Of course, That's not all written out here. All it says is, behold, the Lamb of God. But we understand the bigger picture of what's going on. And so here comes the sacrificial lamb. And obviously, John the Baptist has been teaching this because it wouldn't be just in a vacuum that his disciples see this Lamb of God and then just go, well, I guess we'll follow him. They knew who he was. John was rightly preparing the way, rightly understanding the Bible in the Old Testament to where when he saw Jesus, he knew who he was. And even his disciples go, oh yeah, that's the guy you've been talking about. I'm going to go and follow him. So they listened to John the Baptist. They heard what John the Baptist said. They drew attention away from John the Baptist. John the Baptist goes out of focus. And who comes into focus? Jesus. And they go and they follow him. That's John the Baptist's whole mission, right? And from this point on, we're not even going to see John the Baptist again, really, to the third chapter. And even then, it's just a glimpse. So that Jesus would increase and he would decrease. And that it was the ultimate hope of John the Baptist. That they, my disciples, would see Jesus. And I would just kind of disappear into the background. So what is a disciple, church? Right, this is what we say. We have our our banners. Disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Well, what does it mean to be a disciple? Right, this is a question not even asked church planters. Going, hey, well, you want to go plant a church, but can you even define what a disciple is? Right, this is the great commission. Go and make disciples. And yet, this is becoming the most difficult question to answer within a church. Well, what is a disciple and how do we make them? And disciple in Scripture is not exactly just this very simple, always it just means a pupil or a learner. It's a lot more 
deep than that. Maybe not necessarily complex, but it's a lot broader than that. And here at Redeemer, we define a disciple as a worshiper, a follower, a servant, and a missionary. A worshiper, a follower, a servant, and a missionary. Because from Genesis to Revelation, anybody who follows God, anybody who's a disciple of Jesus is doing these things, is worshiping Jesus, following Jesus, serving Jesus, on mission for Jesus. And all of us are called to be disciples and then to make disciples who are the same thing. So church, it's important. Write down what is a disciple and wrestle with it. Wrestle with it. Because you have a responsibility. It's not my responsibility for you, but you have a responsibility as a disciple of Jesus to know what a disciple is and to then go make them. One thing a mentor of mine, a good friend of mine, has always told me was, always be discipled and always be discipling. You're never too old to be discipled. You're never too old to be discipling. And so, who is discipling you? And I want you to understand, I'm not talking about a classroom setting, or it's always this formal setting of sit down over coffee and let's hammer these things out, but who is speaking into your life, legitimate speaking into your life, the truths of Scripture, and who's holding you accountable to being a disciple, and who are you holding accountable to being a disciple? Who is looking at you going, teach me who the Lamb of God is? What does discipleship look like? It's not very difficult, guys. It's being in God's Word together. It's praying together. It's applying the Word of God in real life together. Right? It's working through the grind of things. Getting down into the trenches of life. Actually working through all of these things. And constantly pointing each other back to the Lamb of God. And I will even say, discipleship is an act of worship. It's a beautiful act of of worship, when you are entering into discipleship and discipleship relationships, it is something to really behold. It's beautiful. It is worshipful. And so in your discipleship then, do you put pressure upon yourself to have to be the person who is um, holding it all together, that all of it is is depending upon you, right? Because that's what we make discipleship to be. Like, I have to know all this information. I have to be able to have all this, all these answers clearly down because when they ask me, i got to be able and be ready to go. Like, is it all about you or is your discipleship all about Jesus? And the reason I orient that question that way is because none of us will ever arrive. None of us will ever have all the answers. None of us are ever going to get all the books of the Bible memorized perfectly. Right? None of us are ever going to have all the right answers all the time. But we have to remember that discipleship is not about us performing, but it's about us pointing to Him. And being honest and going, you know what, I'm going to fumble along the way. And it's okay. I don't have all the answers. And it's okay. We know where the answer is. We have the Scriptures. We have the Holy Spirit. We have Christ. And so I want to invite you really to taking pressure off of yourselves of some performance metric, 
that you think you have to obtain in order to disciple other people. You have what is necessary to do these things. And here is maybe a tangible measurement of the effectiveness of your discipleship. Are the people that you are discipling or pouring your life out into, right, constantly pressing into Christ, are they going out and following Jesus? I know it seems really silly to even ask the question, but are they following Jesus or are they just following you? Right, Because John the Baptist, yes, these disciples were following him, but his ultimate goal was that they would go out and follow Jesus. If your discipleship, if your disciple is constantly talking about you and how amazing you are and everything you read and everything you know, are they actually getting Jesus or are they just excited about you? Our discipleship needs to be so focused on Christ that we can begin to see if we die and go away that those we're discipling are continuing in the path of following Jesus and they recognize him and they go and they follow him. And so receiving and believing in Jesus as the lamb is it's necessary for us to become children of God, to be saved from our sins, to be born again. But the gospel is more than just being saved. It's also about calling others into a discipleship relationship. Verses 38 through 42, let us come and see our relational God. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them. So these disciples started following him. So he turned and he saw them. And he said them to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him about or stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. That is 4 p.m. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So here's this really, it hit me in a very comical kind of way. That John the Baptist is sitting here, hey, here's the Lamb of God. And these guys are like, well, I'm going to go follow him. And here's Jesus walking, just like, can I help you guys? Just walking along, and these two guys just kind of following him awkwardly perhaps. And Jesus is saying, can I help you? What's going on? But he says, what are you seeking? And I like the question that Jesus asks. Jesus knows, but he's putting the ball in their court. He wants a genuine fellowship, if you will. He wants people who are having to wrestle with why following him is actually necessary to really grapple with what it is that they're after. And so him asking the question really forces that sort of inward um, sort of contemplation. And you can tell in their response, they know who they're after. Rabbi, teacher. It's, it's a very honorable way of expressing, you are the teacher. They have high respect for him, even yet they have not sat down and had a conversation with him. Yet they know who he is based off of the word of God, the testimony of John, and seeing Jesus right before them. And so the question is, 
well, where are you staying? Right? Which is also an awkward question to ask for somebody you've just met. Like, hey, so where do you live? <laughs> but the idea being, I want to go with you. Wherever you're going, I want to go because I want to sit down and learn and grab everything I can from you. That was the intent of the question. Jesus, seeing the genuineness of their heart, says, come and see. You started to follow me? Come on, I'll take you. And so from four o'clock in the afternoon, they stayed all the way into the evening, just sitting there talking, discussing, I'm sure, many wonderful things. But what we see here is a beautiful invitation of the Lord for his disciples to really come and follow him. Right? This is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Word made flesh, all things made through Him. Nothing was made that was not without Him, right? And yet He's saying, come with me. Come, follow me. Jesus is not pushing them away. He's not speaking down to them. He is saying, come, listen, learn, ask questions. And so these two disciples, who are they? Well, First, we have Andrew. Andrew is the one, upon hearing John the Baptist, he saw Jesus. And then immediately after him seeing Jesus, he goes and he finds his brother Simon, who is later called Peter. And then he speaks to his brother Simon, saying, we have found the Messiah, meaning the anointed one, the one we've been expecting from the Old Testament. And what did he do from that point? He brought Simon with him to Jesus. So it says he went out to find him, he spoke to him, and he said, come with me, let me show you who he is. So immediately, really without question, Andrew becomes the first disciple-making disciple. And he hasn't even been commissioned by the Lord yet. (laughs) And so he goes out and he brings Simon in, and Simon, later renamed Peter, is the infamous Peter we see throughout the scripture. But why this renaming? The, the Gospel of John doesn't clue us into the renaming and the reason why, but let me just bring us to Matthew 16 for a moment to understand. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus really asked the question, who do you say that I am? Who am I? And Peter, in this beautiful moment of finally getting something right, says, you are the Christ, the Son of God, Right? Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, right? And then Jesus goes, upon this, he says, I'm going to name you Peter, which means rock. Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the picture here, and there's a lot of debate about what this means, but this is my, my understanding of what this means, is that upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, So that upon the foundation that Peter will be an apostle, will the church be built upon this truth? It is this, that Jesus is the Son of God. And upon that truth, the church will be built. So Peter's name change is significant. Significant because once Jesus is gone and he ascends, The ongoing work of the church, the establishment of the New Testament church is going to rest upon the apostles continuing to make disciples who teach the commands of Christ. There is a very unique relational paradigm that is taking place in this discipleship. 
You have John the Baptist in relationship with, with Andrew, one of his disciples, who is then a brother of Peter, who then goes to Peter and calls him to Jesus. And then Andrew and Simon Peter together follow Christ, and Jesus invites them into this intimate discipleship relationship with him that will last for the next few years. And so what you begin to see here is discipleship isn't really just this drop into the middle of nowhere and you just preach a message and you hope people hear it and then come to faith. What you're beginning to see here in the effectiveness of discipleship is that it's happening with people you know. It's happening with those who are close to you, family, friends, reaching out to them. And so I want to ask you as a disciple, are you one who is genuinely after Jesus? Are you genuinely after him? Do you want Jesus? Do you want a relationship with Jesus? Or do you just want all the perks and the benefits that Jesus has to offer? I like the healings. I like the blessings. I like all these things. Like if Jesus were to turn back and see you awkwardly following him going, what are you after? What are you going to say? And that is very important because Jesus isn't just interested in giving you things. He's interested in redeeming and restoring a relationship between you and God and you and one another. And so listen, God has made us relational. And not to be so mechanical in our approach of discipleship. This is why we also say discipleship is in life together. The rhythms and the ebbs and the flows of life. right? It's not always just sitting down in coffee and working through a book and working through the Bible at the same time. It's also in the grind of things when you can't sleep at night because your children keep waking up or when you just lost your job and you're stressed out and you don't want to leave the house. Like In those relationships, we are constantly to apply the word of God and constantly to pray for one another, right? And we go and we find one another, especially if someone is down and out, like we got to dig, we got to go. And so in that very simple relational approach, even that Andrew does here, let me ask you, who is it that you need to go find? Who do you need to go find in order to tell them about Jesus. It could be somebody within the church. It could be somebody who doesn't even know Jesus at all. Maybe a lost, lost relative or neighbor. Like who do you need to go after? Andrew knew right away who he needed to go after. And he went and he found him. So who do you need to go find? And then the next question is, what do you need to tell them when you find them? Right? Think about it. Who is this person you need to go tell about Jesus? And then what do you need to explain to them about Jesus? And how are you going to do it? Right? We, we become so formulaic. We need to know the ABCs, the exact things to say at the right time. Well, listen, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have the Word of God. Lean upon Him. If you know the Gospel and you know this person to whom you're speaking, it should be fairly obvious in how you need to approach them. And for Peter, it's very clear. When Andrew would say, we found the Messiah, that made sense to Peter. It probably wouldn't make sense 
to a 21st century Springfieldian. Hey, I found the Messiah. People are like, what do you mean? (laughs) So what do you need to say? And then how will you lead them to Jesus? Andrew knew how to take Peter back. He's like, hey, come with me. Just come and see. Right? And this is what discipleship is. It's not a just drop in, track bomb and leave. It's come in, share Christ, tell them about Christ and come with me to Christ. And when you call others to follow Jesus, you need to give them that invitation to come and see. Right? This is why hospitality and humility are such big markers of who we are as the people, as the children of God. Because we're constantly calling people to come in and follow Christ as we follow Christ. And so this reminds that when we do that, we begin to break down against the sinful, um, the brokenness of sin that has made us relationally distant. Right, Sin has come in and has caused us to, eh, I don't want to be near anybody. I don't want to knock on anyone's door. I just don't want to talk to anybody. But the gospel, when it changes us, it says, come in. Come in and draw near and be close. And listen, when we are disciples, and we believe Jesus is the Son of God, we are accepting the call to a new identity, right? Peter just got a new identity, right? A new identity, and not only as an individual, but as the people of God. Upon this rock, I will build my church, speaking about all of his people. And also the call to a life built on a solid foundation. A life built on the solid foundation. As a church, we are being built up together in Christ, like one brick on top of another, until we reach the head, which is Christ. And as disciples, we have a faith that penetrates the gates of hell, right? The gates of hell will not prevail. This was the word that he spoke to Peter when he told him, upon this rock, I'll build my church. So what that means is, as individuals, as the people of God, we have the same resurrecting power that Jesus had when he came up from from the grave, excuse me. So we have that same power inside of us. And so discipleship is a relational call to come and see. And it helps us then, as we're in discipleship with one another, hey, remember who you are, what your identity is. Remember what we are built upon. We're not built upon sand, we're built upon a solid rock. Hey, brother, sister, remember the power that we have that resides within us. Because constantly we're we're tempted with um, being defeated all the time. Like we can't do it. We don't know how to do it, or we're struggling, or we we succumb to depression or loneliness and discipleships. Look, come back and see who you are in Christ. Jesus is not sitting around wondering if you're going to make yourself better so that he'll actually like you. No, he's saying, come in and step into the reality of who you are. This is who you are because of me. And this is what discipleship does. And this is why it's necessary that we have a relationship with one another because we say, brother, sister, come with me. Remember who you are. 
We are the church. Remember the power of Christ residing in you. We have the power to overcome sin. We have the power to overcome this loneliness because of the victory found in Christ. So having a relationship is important, but what makes our relationship with God and one another so much more meaningful is understanding really the promises of God that have brought us this eternal hope. Verses 43-51, through let us come and see our promise-keeping God. Then the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Come and see our promise-keeping God. Jesus finds Philip saying, follow me. It's the first time we have Jesus actually calling the disciples here in this gospel to follow him. Up to this point, it's been the disciples of John calling the disciples to follow Jesus. Now Jesus is saying, follow me. So then again, we see the same thing. Philip being called by Jesus, now goes out and finds Nathanael. And he calls Nathanael. And Philip tells Nathanael, they found Jesus. And he speaks to him in a way that Nathanael would understand, saying, this is the one whom Moses and the law were all speaking about and all pointing to. Galatians 3 gives more clarity to this, talking about the law came. Right? We talked about Jesus a couple weeks ago being Uh, That the law came through Moses, but grace came through Jesus. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law. The law acted as a guardian, Galatians 3 says. As a guardian, meaning keeping us aware that we're sinners and in need of a Savior. Putting it very simply. As a guardian until Jesus would come. And now that Jesus has come, we no longer need a guardian for our faith because our faith is sight. And so the one whom Moses and all the law had pointed to and all the prophets had pointed to, listen, Nathaniel, he is here. And listen, the prophets had even attested to, 1 Peter 1 talks about this, that the prophets, their entire objective, their entire ministry in the Old Testament was not for themselves, but to serve the church to come. That's what he says in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. They were preparing the way for the coming of Jesus. 
That was the whole ministry and the purpose of the prophets. They longed and they desired to see Jesus. They didn't get to see him. And now that he's here, we, the church, can clearly see him because the law and the prophets paved the way clearly. And who is he? He's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It's like, well, that's pretty anticlimactic, right? Because in, in the time, Nazareth is really just kind of this nobody town, right? It's like saying the Savior of the world's from Branson. Like, oh, really? Right? So there's no real, and no offense to the Bransonite over here I met earlier. <laughs> it just hit me all of a sudden. There was some clear animosity between Galileans and Nazarenes. There was clearly some prejudice, some stereotypes here. And we know that in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, it says that in order that the Scriptures would be fulfilled, right, Jesus would come out of Nazareth. But we have a problem. The entire Old Testament, there is no mention of a Nazarene. There's no mention of Jesus from Nazareth. So it seems really confusing. It's very possible that the idea of Jesus being called a Nazarene is more of a slang term of identifying somebody as a social nobody. As a social nobody. And you see that more explicitly written in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, in the first two verses, where it says, there was nothing about this Savior, this Messiah, that should cause you to even look upon Him. He was just a nobody. And so here, Philip comes in saying, look, this nobody from Nazareth is coming. This one who's the son of Joseph, ultimately the son of David, he is the Messiah. And Philip responds to him saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? It's like the most insulting question, (laughs) right? Where are you from? Nazareth. Is it possible anything good can come out of that place? But it wasn't a question uh, to insult. The question was more of a no-nonsense question because Nathaniel here is looking for, honestly looking for, the Savior, the Messiah. And so this just doesn't make sense, but he's going to ask the question. And Philip says, just come and see. Come and see. And so he comes with him. And I love how Jesus does this. He doesn't wait for Nathaniel to approach him and to ask him questions about him being a Nazarene. But Jesus, knowing already his no-nonsense honesty, approaches Nathaniel and hits him up before he can even say a word, saying, look, an Israelite in, indeed in whom there is no deceit. Meaning Nathaniel was not going to play around and be deceiving in what he was looking for. He had no ulterior motives. He was honest in his seeking, and Jesus already knew that, and it stopped Nathaniel in his tracks. Saying, how do you know me? Right? The shifting of questions are drastic. Jesus displays the power of his knowledge. Before Philip even called you over here to follow me, I already knew you. I was already aware of what you were asking, what you were thinking, what you were after. And that was enough in Nathaniel's mind and his soul 
to just really respond ultimately in worship. Rabbi. A guy he's never even met. Even though all he knows is that this is the, this is the Son of God, apparently. And yet, all he knows is that Jesus knows about him personally. And so he calls him Rabbi. Son of God. King of Israel. I mean, these are loaded, loaded terms. Son of God here, more explicitly, is a messianic reference here. When you get to John chapter 5, the Jews were going to try to kill Jesus because he was calling himself the Son of God. He was calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. And so when Nathaniel says this, he understands what he's saying. And he says, the King of Israel. That is the promised, anointed King. 2 Samuel 7, the anointed one who will sit on the throne and it will be established forever. This is the Messiah. And especially being the king of Israel, being a heavily messianic charge. And so here we have just snapshots, right? Snapshots of who Jesus is, right? The Lamb of God, the Son of God, the King of Israel, Rabbi. And during this time in first century Palestine, especially, they are They are talking about and longing for a king, the Messiah, to come because they are sick and tired of living under oppressive rule. So more than anything, they're constantly skirting over the suffering servant and going straight to the victorious king. And I think Jesus, in his wisdom, in his wisdom, knew that. And so he he responds saying, you're going to see greater things. You're going to see the heavens open. You're going to see angels ascending and descending, not upon who? The king, but upon the son of man. Jesus doesn't deny he's the king of Israel. He doesn't deny that he's the son of God. He doesn't deny those things, but he approaches this in a slightly nuanced way, giving them a different snapshot of who he is as the son of God. Of man. It's a less charged messianic title. So he doesn't divert the issue or skirt around it. Instead, he comes at it differently. And so the term can simply mean being human, right? Because in the Old Testament, you didn't have a whole lot of adjectives that were describing who you were. So it's just kind of like, well, these are the sons of God. These are the sons of man. This is the son of David. This is the sons of Israel. You had those sorts of titles. But in this case in particular, it means, yes, that Jesus is human, but also that he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And that comes from, more specifically, Daniel chapter 1, where it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So Jesus is not skirting the reality that he will have a kingdom and that he is a king, but he is more gently approaching and giving a more fuller picture of what it means to be the Messiah. For him to be the king that sits enthroned forever, he must first be a suffering servant, which is something the Jews of the day were missing. And so Jesus takes Nathanael on an incredible journey here. He takes them all the way back to the book of Genesis. This imagery here comes back to Genesis chapter 28. 
If you were to turn to Genesis chapter 28, this is the story of when Jacob has the dream. And his dream is the ladder that reaches up to the heavens. And let me read part of it. And he, that is Jacob, dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you, in you and your offspring shall be all the families of the earth. Be blessed. Jesus doesn't sit here and say, this is explicitly from Genesis chapter 28, but I'm just going to say it might be a little too ironic here that it wouldn't be a reference to or an allusion to Genesis chapter 28. And so perhaps Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, I am the Lord of Genesis 28. I am the Lord that Jacob saw on the ladder. In fact, that's a a messianic um, uh, vision that Jacob has. I am the Lord who promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their offspring would be more numerous than the sands of the seashore or the stars in the sky. I am the Lord who is the promised offspring of Abraham, the seed who will come to destroy the works of the evil one. I am the Lord who stood on top of the ladder looking down at Jacob, but now I have descended and I am standing among you, Nathaniel. I am the Lord, the only one who can ascend back into heaven because I came from heaven. I am the Lord who will go back to the ancient of days. But before I do, I must accomplish a work that no one would expect a messianic king to accomplish. That is to lay down my life for my people, my kingdom. Because think about it. What do kings do? When, when kings die, it's usually because their kingdom has been defeated. And so they either fall on their own sword or they're killed, right? And their kingdom dies with them. But this is the paradox of the kingdom of God. That the king must die first, and as a result of him dying, his kingdom will flourish and expand. Part of Jesus' plan of salvation is that he would be seen really as a cultural nobody, but clearly understood in terms of his salvation. Jesus wasn't trying to just draw a crowd to you know, see his cool, trendy clothes or his cool, you know, highlights in his hair and stuff like that. Like, Jesus wasn't all about that. Jesus wasn't trying to just have this physical appearance about him that was, oh, wow, this is capturing. But he wanted the people to see salvation. But some of us think, as people, as what else would be, be, I guess, some of us think that because we are maybe nobodies, that we can't do something, we can't make disciples, we can't do the work of the kingdom because maybe we're not smart enough or we're not educated enough or we're not popular enough or whatever it is. But Jesus shows us that our faith is what declares us as children of God. 
Our faith in Christ alone is what empowers us and equips us and makes us sufficient enough for the work and the task that is ahead. It's not some elite members-only club. right? It's for anybody, for all people. Jesus humbles himself, making himself the lowest, showing that eternal life is not about status within a life, but it's all bound up in him, and it's extended to everyone. So what sort of stereotypes or prejudices are you are holding you back, maybe, from being obedient to the Lord. For a moment, there was a prejudice stuck in Nathaniel's mind about people who come out of Nazareth, but Jesus completely plowed through that, and immediately Nathaniel was able to clearly see and obediently follow Jesus. What is holding you back? What is keeping you back from following the Lord? My hope is also that as you're reading through the Bible this year, and I hope you're able to do that with us, that you're able to see the promises of Jesus throughout the pages of Scripture. That you're not just seeing boring stories and mundane stories, but that you're able to see that the promises of God are constantly flowing through the pages. And that Jesus is showing us that His work, what He's doing, goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. All the way back to the book of Genesis. But then he also points us forward, right? He points us forward that there is a, there are greater things to come. And this is what he tells Nathaniel. Look, you're about, you think this is amazing. You're about to see something even greater, even greater. And so how about you? Are you able to see, to look back and see what Jesus has done so that you can see the greater things that are coming Ahead? You understand, every day that we read our Bible, it is an invitation from the Lord to come and see. Come and see, my child. Come and see what I've done. And so as a disciple, we must never lose sight of the greater things. And as a disciple maker, we need to constantly be ready to call one another to come and see alongside us. And sometimes we just get stuck, right? Nathaniel was stuck, and then Philip said, come on, man, we got to get over that hump of stereotype that you have there. Come and see. So who is it that you need to call with you to come and see Christ? So here's the good news of our come and see discipleship. We discover that the work and promises of Jesus our works and promises that are for us, the children of God, those who've been born again, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. He comes to show the world who He is, but then in His humility, He shows us that everything that He and the Father have planned was done so that sinners like you and me might be with Him forever. It is all about Him. And at the same time, He is doing this for us. Galatians 3 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Church, this is your Savior. 
The come and see discipleship we've been called to has shown us that we are more than sinners, but by faith we are now children of the living God. And that should bring us great joy and excitement and reason to praise. So the photos we take, right? The pictures we're always taking, capturing different snapshots of our children, our friends, even ourselves. We begin to notice that all those photos really add up to a bigger, more grand story of who someone is or maybe who you are. And so the same with these snapshots of Jesus. We see different angles of who he is. And as we do, we begin to see more of what he's done and why he's so worthy of worship. And so as we focus more and more on Jesus with a come and see mentality, the less focus is on us and more is on him. Think about it. In the last 45 minutes, I've been preaching, and I know some of you are desperate for me to stop. How much of John the Baptist have you really thought about? Have you considered him? Think of all the snapshots we just took of Jesus today. The Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, King of Israel, Son of Man, promised offspring of Abraham. John the Baptist reached his goal. He didn't want to be seen. And all we've seen today is Christ. So that's the point of our discipleship. That we might decrease and Christ increase. So let's go with this charge in discipleship. To make discipleship not about others capturing snapshots of us, but about them capturing snapshots of what we have called them to come and see. That is Jesus, the Lamb of God. And the relational promise keeping God.